Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the podcast. We did a bit of a skip day yesterday um, because I had band practice last night. My band has a gig coming up, and um, we have also have uh, a bit of a sickie in the house. Toby, young Toby, at four months old, has his first case of the sniffles. Um, so he's fine. He's not really in bad spirits or anything, but he was very sniffly and couldn't sleep. And, um, anyway, it was just a big night. And when it came time to do the podcast, I just went, oh, I can't, can't do it. So skip date. So we'll take off from where we left off, uh, which is chapter three. Um, since we are missing our head researcher, says Tegrafik, I'll substitute for Swim, said the mum fishy. Um, for today's sneak peek into the meandering soul of George Moore, a naked gale screaming Brian Boru, reference to an ancient island. Brian Boru became a king and gale being an example of the people of Ireland. Apparently shouting your king's name was a war crime, or at least a cry for help. Who knows? The Countess Kathleen is a verse drummer by Yeats. Uh, Wikipedia says, The play is set historically in Ireland during a famine. Uh, the idealistic Countess of the title sells her soul to the devil. Oh, we read that before. Charles Matthews was an English theatre major, manager sorry, and comic actor. According to Wikipedia, well known during his time for his gift of impersonation and skill at table entertainment. Acoustic Eels says... Um, thanks for the skip day, and I was again a day behind in reading, so I find it very hard to get into this book. I agree with you that he's writing this book for himself, with tiny bits of relevant plot hidden amongst long stretches of masturbatory rambling. He really tells on himself when he is saying that Yeats looks like a rook again, and he says, But the smile that had once amused me began to weary me from repetition, and resolving to banish it from my mind forevermore. Take a hint. If you are bored by your own simile, <laughs> imagine how the rest of us feel. Obviously, that is not something you he ever imagined. Wow, yeah. I mean, when you dissect it in that way, acoustic eels, um, he's really admitting that he himself is bored with the things that he's saying as he's saying them. Um, we don't owe it to him to be entertained by everything, you know, and some writers who are good at writing think that we do for some reason. Um, hey, Acoustic Hills, good to see you again, by the way. Haven't seen your name for a little while. Uh, as much as I feel the same way as Andrew about this book in general, I Enjoy his descriptive passages. I travelled to Dublin in 2019 on a quiet trip, and the sun was just as he described it. Here one second, cloud of the next. I started carrying my raincoat around town in a little knapsack, because it would rain very lightly for five minutes, and then you would have 20 minutes of sun. This was the pattern all day, every day I was there. I also walked to St. Stephen's Green while I was there. It is a little park, big enough for a little lake, big enough for, to lose sight of the houses around the edge of the square but not big enough to completely forget that you're in the middle of a city. It was also the site of a historic battle that's relevant to Irish statehood, but I couldn't grasp it all from reading the plaques. Well, <clears throat> yet again, acoustic heels. Your travels as a musician have 
given you a uh, immediate connection to the work that we are reading, um, which is so cool. That always seems to happen with you. There's some immediate connection to the literature itself. I envy that. Sitting all the way over here in Australia, hiding, you know, down the bottom corner of the world. Um, but I will say this, that description of the weather in Ireland reminded me very much of the weather in Tasmania, where Tasmania, the Hobart in, in particular, is situated between quite a steep, tall mountain, um, a very tall mountain, snow-capped peak, and on the other side, a very, very wide, vast river. Like, so much that when you're standing on the shore of this river, it looks like you're standing at the shore of the ocean, but it is actually technically a river. But that river, that waterway, and the mountain um, both sort of encircle the city of Hobart. You know, one is on one side and the river wraps around the other side. And those two things in, uh, opposing each other throw forward very strange weather patterns, and very frequent changes in the weather because the mountain will bounce, you know, cold and warm and low pressure and high pressure and, you know, the, the clouds that can't quite make it over turn to condensation and fall back down and... Um, meanwhile, the river causes, I guess, currents in the air which swirl up against the mountain. So it's like, sometimes it's like you're feeling sun on your face and wind hitting you in the eyes in one direction. And then also there's wind hitting you in the back of the head, which is carrying rain. And it's like, it's sunny and windy in front of me and cold and rainy behind me. And it's all swirling around at the same time. So it's very difficult to um, to manage the weather in Hobart. Everyone, all the locals tend to end up wearing really, like they'll invest in a very good sort of hiking jacket, those ones that are made to shield you from the elements and be light and, and easy to manage. Um, and it's the kind of jacket that you would never wear somewhere like Melbourne because it's too specific. But there, it makes so much sense to have something where, you know, you can pull a hood over and zip it down and <laughs> clip it here and, you know, all those kinds of things. And, you know, then you can unzip the side of your jacket to let some air down. You know, all these little obscure jacket features to manage difficult weather. Um, so, anyway, weird observation. But that's one thing I noticed when I was in Hobart. Everyone wears very expensive hiking jackets. Um, let's keep reading. These unwritten dialogues are often so brilliant that I stop in my walk to repeat a phrase, making as much of it as Matthew's own Wyndham would make, regretting the while that none of my friends is by to hear me. All my friends are actors in these unwritten plays, and almost any event is sufficient for a theme on which I can improvise, but never did nature furnish me with so rich a theme as it did when Yeats and Edward came to see me in Victoria Street. The subject was apparent to me for the beginning, and the reason given for me having agreed to act with them in the matter of the Irish literary theatre, the temptation to have a finger in every literary pie, has to be supplemented. There was another and a greater temptation, the desire to secure a good part in the comedy which I foresaw, and which had, for the last three weeks, unrolled itself, scene after scene, exceeding my imagination of any imagination of mine. 
Who could have invented the extraordinary rehearsals Miss Fernan and her psaltery, or the incident of Yeats's annunciation that Edward had consulted a theologian in London? My anger was not assumed. Yeats told me he never saw a man so angry. He, how could it be otherwise, ready as I am always to shed the last drop of my blood to defend art? Yet the spectacle of Edward and the theologian heresy hunting through the pages of Yeats' plays was behind my anger always, an irresistible comicality that I should be able to enjoy some day. And then the telegram saying that the scepter of intelligence had passed from London to Dublin, who could have invented it? Neither Shakespeare nor Cervantes, nor could either have invented Yeats's letter speaking of the Elizabethan audiences of the ancient, ancient concert rooms. The hissing of the Countess Kathleen had enraged me, as every insult upon art must enrage me. My rage was not factitious. All the same, when Yeats spoke to me of his arch-enemy, the author of the pamphlet The Cross of the Guillotine, the West Kensington conspirators and the president of the Order of the Golden Door, who had expelled the entire society and gone away to Paris, I felt that the comedy was not begotten to it by any poor human Aristophanes below, but was the invention of the great Aristophanes above. We had only just finished the first act of the comedy in which I found myself playing a principal part and the second act promised to exceed the first all second acts should, for I learned from Yeats that the cross of the guillotine had been sent to Cardinal Logue and that the pronouncement was expected from him in the evening papers. If Logue's opinion was adverse to the play, Yeats was afraid that Edward would not dare to challenge his authority. His he being primate of all Ireland. Further rumours were current in Dublin that morning, the names of the priests to whom Gill had sent the, the play. It had gone, so it was said, to a Jesu of high repute as an educationalist and to a priest of some literary reputation in London, England. Sorry, Yeats wouldn't vouch for the truth of these rumours, but if there were any truth in them, he felt sure that Edward... felt sure that Edward... I just lost my place completely. What the heck? Where, how do I just lose my place so much? The legend here say hunting through the pages of the Yeats play. It's just it's a comicality that I should be able to enjoy someday. And then the telegram saying that the scepter... My anger was not assumed. Yeats told me he never saw a man so angry. How could it be otherwise? Uh, whatever. Ready as I am always to shed the last drop of my blood to defend my art. Yet the spectacle of Edward and the theologian here say hunting through the pages of Yeats' plays was behind. My anger always. An irresistible comicality that I should be able to enjoy someday. And then the telegram saying that the scepter of intelligence had passed from London to Dublin. Who could have invented it? Neither Shakespeare nor Cervantes, nor could either have invented Yeats's letter speaking to the Elizabethan audiences at the ancient concert rooms. The hissing of the Countess Kathleen had enraged me, as every insult upon art must enrage me. My rage was not factitious. All the same, when Yeats spoke to me of his arch enemy, the authors of the pamphlet The Cross of the Guillotine, the West Kensington conspirators and the president of the Order of the Golden Door, who had expelled the entire society and gone away to Paris, I felt that the comedy was not begotten by any poor human 
Toffrey's below, but was the invention of the great Aristophanes above? I think I've gone to the wrong paragraph, is what I've done. <clears throat> we only had just finished the first act of the comedy in which I found myself playing a principal part, and the second part act promised to exceed the first as all acts should. Oh, yeah, I did do that. I must have accidentally scrolled. Further rumours were current in Dublin that morning. The names of the priests who, to whom Gil had sent the play and had gone, so it was said, to a suit high repute, uh, and to a priest of some literary reputation in England, Yeats wouldn't vouch for the truth of these rumours, but if there were any truth in them, he felt sure that Edward would be advised that to stop the play would raise the question of whether Catholicism was incompatible with modern literature, and this was... A question that Nojasu would care to raise, the line Yeats said that the pamphlet laid special stress on was, and smiling, the Almighty contemns the lost. I begged for an explanation, for, as we can only conceive, the Almighty is in the likeness of a man. We must conceive him as smiling or frowning from his judgment seat. Frowning, I suppose, would mean that he was angry with those who had disobeyed the commands of his priests. And smiling would mean that he was thinking of priests at all, which, of course, would be very offensive to the majority of the population. Yeats laughed, but could not be pressed into the theological argument. You look upon theology, Yeats, as a dead science, and that he cawed a little, the kindly core of the jackdaw it was, and I wondered why he was not more angry with Edward and with the priests. Ecclesiastical interference is intolerable, I said, trying to rouse him, but if he were indifferent to the fate of his play... If he did not care for literature as much as I thought he did, why was it that he did not notice the springtime, have tulips and nursemaids no part in the Celtic Renaissance? It isn't kind not to look at them. They have come out to be looked at. Do notice the fragrance of the lilacs. Are all of you Irish indifferent to the springtime? Upon my word, it wouldn't surprise me if the spring forgot one of these days to turn up in Ireland. Yeats, I looked forward to finding Ireland a land of endless enchantment, but so far as I can see at the present, Ireland isn't bigger than a priest's back. We passed out of the gates and walked up the sunny pavement. Girls were going by in pretty frocks. That one, Yeats, how delightful she is in her lavender dress. To exaggerate one's ignorance of Dublin seemed to me to be parcel of the character of the returned native, and though I knew well enough that we were walking down Grafton Street, Yeats was asked what street we were in. When he mentioned the name, I told him the name was familiar, but the street was changed, or my memory of it imperfect. For such parade, for parade it was, I have no fault to find with myself, nor, if, nor for stopping Yeats every several times and beginning and begging him of him to admire the rich shadows that slumbered in the brick entanglements, making an ugly street seem beautiful. But I cannot recall, without frowning disapproval, the fact that I compared the sky at the end of Grafton Street to a beautiful sky by Corot. The sky, I mean, rises above yellow and sand and walls, blue slates and iron railings, and these enhance its beauty very much in the same way as the terracotta shop fronts in Grafton Street enhance the loveliness of the pale blue sky that I saw the day I walked down Grafton Street with Yeats. To exalt art above nature has become a platitude, and resolving never to be guilty of this platitude again, I asked Yeats if the grey walls at the end of the street were Trinity College, and standing on my toes insisted on looking through the railings and admiring the green swords and the trees and the cricket match in the progress. Yeats was willing to talk, walk, talk of Trinity, but not look at it. And though I have no taste or knowledge in architecture, it was pleasant even with Yeats to admire the Provost's house 
and the ironwork over the gateway and the beautiful proportions of the courtyard, it was pleasant to allow one's enthusiasm to flow over like a mug of ale at the side of the front of Trinity. To contrast the curious differences in style from the bank presented to the college, the college severe and in straight lines, the bank all in curves, the Venus de Milo facing the Antinus, I cried. Eats's laughter laughed a somewhat chilling approval, as is his wont. All the same, he joined me in admir- admiration of the curve of the parapet cutting the sky, the upspringing statues breaking the line, and the beautiful pillared particos up and down the street, the one in Westmoreland Street reminding me of a walk with my father when I was a child of ten. In those times, a trade in umbrellas was permitted under the great portico, and though it could interest Yeats no wise, I insisted on telling him that I remembered my father buying an umbrella there, and that my affection for Dublin was wilting for lack of an umbrella stand under the portico. Impossible to interest Yeats in that umbrella my father bought in the 60s. He seemed absorbed in some project on the other side of the street, and when the opposite pavement was reached, he began to tell me of his friend, a clerk in a lawyer's office, who I gathered was a revolutionary of some kind after business hours, a follower of Miss Gone. I refused, however, to listen to his account in Miss Gone's prophecies or in the mild-eyed clerk on the third landing, who said he would join us on the quay when he had finished drafting a lease. The keys were delightful that day, and I wish Yeats to agree with me that there is nothing in the world more delightful than to dawdle among seagulls floating to and fro through a pleasant dawdling light, but how is it, Yeats? You can only talk in the evening by the fire, that yellow hand drooping over the chair as if seeking a harp of applewood. Yeats cawed. He could only caw that morning, but he cawed softly, and my thoughts sang so deliciously in my head that I soon began to feel his ideas to be unnecessary to my happiness, and that it did not matter how long the clerk, clerk kept us waiting. When he appeared, he and Yeats walked on together, and I followed them up an alley, discreetly remaining in the rear, fearing that they might be muttering some great revolutionary scheme. I followed them up a staircase full of dust and found myself to my great surprise, in an old library. Very like a drawing by Fizz, I said to myself, bowing, for Yeats and the clerk were bowing apologies for our intrusion of twenty or more shabby genteel scholars who sat reading ancient books under immemorial spiderwebs. At the end of the library there was another staircase, and we ascended, leaving footprints in the dust. We went along a passage, which opened upon a gallery overlooking a theatre, one that I had no difficulty in recognising as part of the work done in Dublin by the architects that were brought over in the 18th century from Italy. The garlands on the ceiling were of Italian workmanship and the reliefs that remained on the walls. Once the pit was furnished with Chippendale chairs, carved mahogany chairs, perhaps gilded chairs in which ladies in high-bosomed dresses and slippered feet had sat listening to some comedy or tragedy when their lovers were not talking to them, and in those times the two boxes on either side of the stage let out a, at a guinea or two guineas for the evening.
One moment, please. I've lost my place yet again. Here we are. Once supper parties were served in them, for Abbey Street is only a few yards from the old Houses of Parliament, and even Grattan may have come to this theatre to meet a lady whom he kissed after giving her an account of his speech. It amused me to imagine the love scene, the lady's beauty and the Grattan's passion for her, and I wondered what her end might have been if she had died poor without money to buy paint for her cheeks, or dye her hair old, decrepit and alone like that fair helm maker who had lived five hundred years ago in France, or the helm maker who had lived a thousand years ago in Ireland. She too had been sought by kings for her sweet breasts, her soft hair, her live mouth and sweet kissing tongue, and she too tells how she fell from love's high estate into shameful loves at nightfall in the wind and rain. I looked on the plank benches that were all the furniture of this theatre, I thought of the stevedores, stevedores, the carters, the bullies and their trolls, eating their suppers, listening the while to some farce or tragedy ridden, nobody knows by whom. Grattan's mistress may have sat among such, eating her bread and onions about eighty years ago. A little later she may have fallen below, even the lust of the keys and in her great want may have written the, to Grattan's some simple letter, and her words were put into my mind. Dear Henry, you will be surprised to hear from me after all these years. I am sorry to say that I am in very poor health and distress. I had to leave a good place last Christmas and have not been able to do much since. I thought you might send me a few shillings. If you do, I shall be very grateful and will not trouble you again. Send them for old times' sake. Do you know that next year it will be forty years since we met for the first time? Looking over an old newspaper, I saw your speech, and am sending this to the House of Commons. My address is 24 Liffey Street, Mrs Mulhall, my proper name. Grattan would read this letter, hurriedly thrusting it into the brown frock coat with brass buttons which he wore, and that night and the next day, and for many a week, the phrase of the old light of love. Do you know that next year, it will be forty years since we met for the first time, would startle him and would recall a beautiful young girl whom he had met in some promenade, listening to music, walking under trees, the Vauxhall Gardens of Dublin, he would say, now she is old, with grey hair and broken teeth, and he would wonder what was the good place she had lost her last Christmas. He would send her something, or tell somebody, to give her a few pounds, and then would think no more of her. Yeats and the clerk were talking about the rebuilding of the theatre, saying that the outer walls seemed sound enough, but all the rest would have to be rebuilt. And I wandered around the gallery, wondering what were Yeats's dreams while looking into the broken decorations and the faded paint. Plays were still acted in this bygone theatre, but what plays? And who were the mummers that came to play them? And is as if in answer, a man and two women came on the stage. I heard their voices, happily not the words they were speaking, for at the bottom of my heart a suspicion lingered that it might be the Colleen Bourne they were rehearsing, and not to hear that this was so I moved up the gallery and joined Yeats, saying that we had been among dust and gloom long enough that I detected trains, and would like to get back into the open air. We moved out of the theatre, Yeats still talking to the clerk about the price of the building, telling him that the proprietor must never know from whom the offer came. 
for if we were to hear that there was a project on foot for the establishment of an Irish literary theatre, his price would go up 50%. The clerk muttered something about 100%, and if he were to hear that Mr Edward Martin was at the back of it, Yeats muttered, the clerk interjected that if he were to hear that it would be hard to say what price he would not be putting upon his old walls. A dried-up, dusty fellow, he was the clerk, a man about fifty, and I wondered what manner of revolution it might be that he was supposed to be stirring, and how deep was his belief that Maud Gone would prove herself to be an Irish Joan of Arc, not very much deeper than Yeats's belief that he would one day become possessed of a theatre in Dublin and produce literary plays in it for a people unendowed with any literary sense whatever. Yet they continued shepherding their drama dreams up the keys, just as if the Countess Kathleen had not been hissed the night before, as if Cardinal Logue were not about to publish an interdiction, as if Edward were the one that could be recovered from ecclesiasticism. It is an old philosophy to say that the external world has not existence except in our own minds, and that day on the quays my experience seemed to bear witness to its truthfulness. The house on the other side, the quays themselves, the gulls floating between the bridges, everything seemed to have put off its habitual reality, to have sloughed it, and to have acquired another a reality that we meet in dreams, and connecting the ex external world with the fanciful projects that I hear discussed with so much animation at my elbow, I began to ask myself if I were the victim of an hallucination, had I come over to Ireland, else surely Ireland had lost her reality. The problem was an interesting one, and getting it well before me, I began to consider if it might be that through excessive indulgence in dreams for over a hundred years, the people had at last dreamed themselves and Ireland away. And this was a possibility that engaged my thoughts as we crossed Carlisle Bridge, I put it to myself in this way, reality can destroy the dream, why shouldn't the dream be able to destroy reality? And I continued to ponder the theory that had been accidentally vouchsafed to me until the clerk left us, and Yeats said, even if it should happen that Edward should stop the performances, I don't think he will, the Irish literary movement will go on. It's extraordinary what conviction they can put into their dreams, I thought, and we walked on in silence, for in spite of myself, Yeats's words had revealed to me a courage and a steadfastness in his character that I had not suspected. There is more stuffing in him than I thought for, and I shouldn't be surprised if he carried something through. What that will be, and how he will carry it, it is impossible to form any idea. Alright, pausing there. Good reading. I think that's a decent amount. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.